welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today's special edition podcast is being recorded during the Lunar New Year holiday period on Monday, the 31st of January, 2022, in the NK News studio. For the first time, we are recording the podcast using StreamYard in order to quickly output a high-quality video for posting on YouTube. This is the first time we've tried this new technology or software, and this video will be released both, or this podcast will be released both as a video and an audio-only podcast episode. We hope that our listeners and viewers will approve, and we look forward to your feedback. I am joined today by NK News reporters, Chad O'Carroll, Dongman Kim, and Collins Wirko, who are with me in the studio, and Ankit Panda, who joins us live from the United States to talk about North Korean missile or miscellany, and yes, that's a pun, and we hope you will forgive it. Before we get started, please check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. For much less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, you can have access to all the excellent articles that my colleagues put out every day. Secondly, please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your Android preferred download service of choice. Uh, That is so that people can find our podcast much more easily. We need to get some more listeners this year, so please help us achieve my personal goal of reaching 10% of Joe Rogan's massive audience. I think we can do it. Thirdly, follow all of us on Twitter. You'll find NK News at nknews.org, so that's easy. Chad O'Carroll is Chad OCL. Jongmin Kim is Jongmin Kim, one word with two N's in the Jongmin. Collins Wirko is his name as one word. Ankit Panda is at NKTPND. And I'm at Jacko Z. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet us at or email us at podcast at nknews.org. Welcome back on the show, Chad, Jongmin, Colin, and Ankit. Hey. I had hoped that this Lunar New Year's break would be a quiet one full of rest and relaxation, but then North Korea launched yet another missile uh, yesterday morning, the seventh so far this year and the biggest one uh, in five years. So let's get to the details of this launch first. Ankit, what kind of missile was this? So the North Koreans launched uh, the Hwasong-12, uh, which is one of their workhorse ballistic missiles. It's pretty much the missile that they developed specifically to hold the U.S. territory of Guam at risk. The North Koreans uh, don't like Guam very much uh, because it hosts Anderson Air Force Base, among other facilities. Uh, and it's where the U.S. actually carries out quite a few of its bomber operations uh, near the Korean Peninsula from uh, B-1Bs and uh, B-52s alike. Uh, so just the vital statistics of this launch, uh, launched from Chagang province, uh, where North Korea tends to launch many of its longer-range capabilities uh, from near the Mupyongri uh, arms factory. Uh, flight distance on the Earth's surface, 800 kilometers. Uh, of course, the altitude was 2,000 kilometers. Uh, the moment I saw the altitude actually uh, yesterday on my phone was when it told me that we were back to uh, potentially a 2017-like scenario. Um, and so... This is uh, a big deal. Uh, this is the seventh launch of the Hwasong-12, uh, and uh, it is the fourth in a row to be successful. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we should uh, talk about uh, where this might lead us uh, in, the, in the coming months and years. You said that the range was uh, 800 and how many kilometers? Uh, so the, the rough number provided by the South Korean authorities was 800 kilometers. I should note that with the trajectory that they demonstrated, uh, the reason we had a pretty good indicator this was a Hwasong-12 before even uh, seeing the North Korean state media release on the 31st uh, was because the trajectory almost exactly matched the first lofted, uh, successful lofted flight test of the Hwasong-12 in May uh, 2017. I believe it was May 14th, 2017 was when this missile first succeeded. Okay, and to, uh, to help us understand a little bit better, uh, is that close to the maximum range of the Hwasong-12 or could it actually go much further? 
No. So lofted trajectories are something that the North Koreans do uh, to ensure that missile tests don't unnecessarily uh, overfly Japan or other countries. And so they actually made a point of this in their statement. They uh, they noted that they launched it on a lofted trajectory to avoid risking the security of of their neighbors, uh, which is thoughtful of them. Uh, right. They haven't always been that thoughtful in the past, have they? Uh, they haven't, but they've made that point about uh, why they do lofted tests before. Uh, but yes, if they te- if they tested this on what's known as a minimum energy trajectory, basically a normal trajectory, the kind of trajectory you would use if you wanted to maximize the missile's range, uh, this missile would fly to around 43 to 4,500 kilometers, uh, certainly sufficient to range Guam. Now, you said that the altitude it flew at was, uh, or the altitude it reached was 2,000 kilometers. That's, uh, you know, to a layman like me, that's pretty high. Is that just about low Earth orbit altitude? Uh, so that's actually funny that you say that because a uh, low Earth orbit actually ends at 2,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Okay, so it's at the, the upper range or the, the, uh, the upper limit of, uh, of low Earth. So it, does that make it a, what does that make it actually? Oh, uh, it doesn't make it anything. It's a, it's still a suborbital object. Uh, it, it it still comes down. Um, but you know, I mean, just for comparison, the International Space Station spends most of its time at about four hundred kilometers. So if you're watching this missile test on the International Space Station, you'd have to actually look up, so to speak. Ha. Huh, okay. That that's a a great metric uh, to compare it to. So yeah, it would have gone feasibly. It could have gone up and over and, and out uh, down the other side of the space station if they'd been in the same area. I suppose so, but the space yeah. station would be would be in orbit, moving around the Earth very quickly. Okay, so it actually left Earth's atmosphere, if if that's if I understand correctly. That is right. Yeah, the atmosphere. Uh, you know, there's a debate about where the atmosphere ends, but 100 kilometers, mm-hmm. give or take, is uh, where most people think it does end. So any any ballistic missile that's of any um, meaningful range will actually exit the Earth's atmosphere. Of course, what's interesting is that most of North Korea's missile tests since 2019, May 2019, when they resumed the missile testing. Uh, have been spending most of their time in the atmosphere, and the reasons for that really have to do with missile defense. But to test a missile of this range, yeah. uh, you you have to leave the atmosphere. Now, what about these supersonic gliders that we've been hearing a bit about lately? How high do they need to go up usually? Uh, so with hypersonic gliders, it, it Sorry, depends. Uh, yeah, so you can, you can exit the, uh, you know, a glider doesn't need to exit the Earth's atmosphere. You can launch it on oh. a depressed trajectory and then insert it into the Earth's atmosphere when it begins gliding and heading towards its target. Uh, but in the case of, let's say, the maneuverable reentry vehicle that the North Koreans tested, um, the the ideal way to use that would be to launch it on a normal ballistic trajectory where it would exit the atmosphere, and then the reentry vehicle, as it enters the atmosphere, uh, would begin to glide. You know, the best way to think about the difference between space and the, and the Earth's atmosphere is that the atmosphere is actually very much like a liquid. Uh, you know, we we breathe the air, so we we, we int- I think intuitively think of the atmosphere as something that's particularly empty. Uh, but to right. a ballistic missile reentry vehicle coming in at very high speeds, uh, the atmosphere might as well just be a liquid. And so uh, that's where that change in medium allows for those aerodynamic forces to come into effect, uh, allowing for that gliding. The Hwasong-12 doesn't do any of this. It's just a good old-fashioned ballistic reentry vehicle that just comes down to Earth at massive speeds, uh, relying primarily on gravity. Right. Uh, I've also seen the word um, apogee used uh, in some of the... the... Uh, figures here with altitude and apogee and range. I'm uh, confessed that I'm complete novice to this. What is an apogee and how does that differ from the altitude? Uh, so apogee just refers to the maximum altitude in flight. Uh, with orbital objects, an apogee is the highest point in an orbit. With a ballistic missile, it's just the highest point in the ballistic arc. A ballistic arc is just a parabola, so it's the highest point uh, in that parabola over the Earth's surface. Okay, well, uh, to our other colleagues, uh, perhaps let me turn to, uh, to Jongmin first. What has uh, South Korean media reported about this latest launch? South Korean media, at first, they were quoting JCS 
the details that were coming out yesterday morning. Uh, but more, let's more talk about South Korean government reaction, actually. Uh, Moon Jae-in administration, they have been uh, avoiding a too hawkish of a statement against a new North Korea missile since last year. But because these were back-to-back -back missiles and then IRBM, uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles. Um, it's different from other type of missiles that were tested this year in terms of political signaling. So uh, Moon, President Moon actually uh, issued the strongest level of statement on the IRBM saying that South Korea condemns it. And there was an emergency NSC meeting held right afterwards. And they were um, talking about how they are concerned that North Korea is nearing or approaching near the 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 rescinding of the self-imposed moratorium by Kim Jong-un in the past. Right. Wow. Okay. And that that's uh, obviously very important. We'll return to that question in a moment. But what has uh, North Korean media reported about this launch, if anything? Uh, North Korean media has, it's, I, in my personal opinion, it seems that they are toning down the IRBM test by not putting it on the front page. Um, and the report was very short. It was very, uh, I, could, I could say that it was technical rather than including any um, outrageous um, anti-US sentiments or any political statements mm. um, into, into the, the North Korean report. It was more about who conducted the test, who was there, or what kind of test it was. Did they confirm the name of the missile as, as Hwasong-12? Was that specifically yes. mentioned? Yes, they did. Okay. Uh, Chad, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, this is the seventh launch this year. Put this in the context of the launches we've seen this year and then also uh, broaden out a bit to uh, bring us back to 2017, the big year of missile test launches. Yeah, so uh, this year we've seen seven missile tests. It's been the most uh, high-frequency testing uh, we've seen, um, seven missile launch events in less than a month. Um, but when you look at how North Korean state media has presented these, there's basically three types of missile tests. There's developmental tests, uh, these hypersonic missiles, which were a goal set out by Kim Jong-un um, uh, at the Congress in January 2021. There are also um, tests which are uh, uh, basically quality control tests, such as the Hwasong-12 um, intermediate range ballistic missile that we saw tested yesterday. And there's also, um, I would say, political, politically motivated tests, which was the train launch ballistic missile that we saw uh, just hours after uh, the US uh, designated North Korea with new unilateral sanctions. So I think if you zoom in and just read what North Korean state media says, there, there are basically three types of explanations for these tests going on. But for me, the much more interesting aspect to all of this is the geopolitical timing. Uh, we have Russia, Ukraine tensions, we have the South Korean presidential election coming up, we have the Olympics, and we also have domestic problems in North Korea. And I think um, basically a perfect window of opportunity came out of all these uh, sets of news events coming at the same time to really uh, encourage Kim Jong-un to accelerate testing in the last 30 days, basically because of Ukraine um uh he has cover it, to some extent um in in testing he knows that the, that washington is pretty much preoccupied with with that um so it's hard for the us to you know uh strike up a, a major new um maximum pressure style policy that we saw in the trump administration 
with the South Korean election on the way. Um, he knows that uh, everyone in politics here is focused on that. With the Olympics about to start, China, for its part, is focused on that. And if North Korea stops the testing now and, and waits until the Olympics are over, I think um, Kim will probably get away with this without angering uh, Xi Jinping too much. Um, and domestically, you know, we saw this uh, food uh, crisis situation last year. Uh, we've seen lots of page uh, coverage in the Nodong Shinmun and uh, broadcast time on state TV dedicated to North Korea's economic problems. Like they are putting those problems and talking about them front first and foremost in state media. Um, and it's very unlikely Kim Jong-un is going to turn uh, that economic situation around anytime soon. But Kim Jong-un does know that he is able to show missile development progress. Uh, that's one area he still does have pretty strong control and is able to show results. So I think all of this came together to, to encourage North Korea to, to really um, uh, pursue this missile testing with a rigor that we haven't and a, and a frequency that we've, we've yet seen so far. Colin, uh, what have you seen from the air? Uh, were preparations for this launch visible ahead of time, or is this something that North Korea can feasibly do out of sight of satellites or spy planes? Well, th this has South Korea said that it took place uh, in Mupyong area of Jagang province on Sunday, soon after the launch. So uh, that was in a place that people have been watching for quite some time. It's a missile factory. And so if someone was in the habit of checking that missile factory every day, they might have seen some something happen in high resolution imagery. But I assume, you know, as Ankit said, uh, this would have been taken off of the assembly line and tested as as a as to make sure that the ones that they're producing are of high quality. So uh, if you're watching this missile factory, you're expecting there to be missiles going around. I don't know. I've never seen a, a high-res image, image of that factory with missiles out on the parking lot or anything. Pra practically but, speaking, I, I'm wondering, is, is this a solid fuel uh, thing or is it a liquid fuel missile? Is it something that has to be erected for quite a while before it actually launches, or could you get it up and, uh, and shoot it within an hour? I'd say Ankit is the expert on that, but I believe it's a liquid-fueled and they have to set it up. Yeah, it is. It is a liquid fueled missile. Uh, they didn't tell us that, you know, they've been talking about this new uh, technique called ampulization, uh, which is an obscure piece of Soviet missile jargon, but basically means uh, liquid fuel missiles that you don't have to fuel in the field. Uh, the Soviets basically uh, came up with this innovation to put liquid fueled missiles on submarines where they could fuel them and do submarine patrols uh, with the fueled liquid fuel missile, which is dangerous. But anyways, um, so they didn't tell us that they ampulized the system and there's no external indicators that I really picked up in the images that would indicate either way. But if it was ampulized, the warning time might have been lower. Uh, but in the past, also, one of the reasons uh, there has been a lot of uh, warning for these tests uh, has been, you know, the U.S. intelligence community uh, observes, for instance, that Kim Jong-un's observation area is being set up, uh, you know, until they switch to the new um, mobile viewing platform, which Kim used to view the maneuverable reentry vehicle test earlier this month. Uh, it was pretty obvious because they would put up a a desk, you know, where Kim Jong Un would have his pointer and his binoculars and his and his little drink, uh, and and watch these tests. And so that would go up a day or so in advance, and then the missile would be erected and fueled. And Kim Jong Un would often be given a tour; he'd be briefed on what was being done. And so, without Kim's personal involvement in these tests, my my expectation is that 
um, the amount of warning has probably gone down quite a bit. Uh, and, and that's dangerous for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, there was this incident earlier this month where um, the U.S. had a ground stop for all civilian aircraft on the West Coast because the trajectory of the uh, maneuverable reentry vehicle was somehow misinterpreted by U.S. early warning systems, right? I should also point out that the Hwasong-12 uses the very same engine for its first stage as the Hwasong-14 ICBM and in a modified form of the Hwasong-15 ICBM. So if there isn't a lot of warning and the U.S. is picking up on these launches after the fact in some cases, that could uh, lead to some uh, some dangerous kind of false alarm scenarios like we did see uh, earlier this month. Yeah, and is so there the, a, Oh, sorry, go on, Colin. Yeah, the, uh, a couple of analysts on Twitter have pretty much for sure geolocated where this test took place yesterday. And it, so it's at this uh, missile factory. And that's where the Hwasong-14 was tested in 2017 as well. So yeah, if it's one thing you want to know when they're going to test a missile, I think people, uh, intelligence agencies and also uh, independent analysts have been watching this factory for a long time. So, uh, but I guess the other issue is uh, not knowing it. You want to know when they're going to test a missile, sure, but you want to know the the military wants to know where where they could do. They have a chance of spotting a missile before it's it's launched in the case of war. And so then you'd probably want Anka to talk about the the the, the launch vehicle and uh, how capable that is, because um, that's what they really care about is, you know, would this be detectable prior to launch in the case of war? Yeah, yes, exactly. And is this something that requires one of those uh, transport director launches or TELS or, or how does this work, Ankit? Yeah, so uh, pretty much all of North Korea's ground-launched, uh, well, not pretty much, all of North Korea's ground-launched ballistic missiles uh, you, are, are road mobile. Uh, so they use transporter erector launchers or mobile erector launchers. Uh, uh, not going to get into the difference between those two. Basically, uh, vehicles, very large vehicles that move these missiles around, they erect the missiles into a vertical position, and then the missiles ignite and fly off outside the Earth's atmosphere to their eventual targets. Uh, the, the tell that was used in this test uh, was uh, a Maz 547-style tell. These are tells that the North Koreans uh, imported from Belarus, which manufactured them. Uh, and they have in the order of around 30 or so of these, so a decent number. These were previously used for the Musudan, uh, which was the first intermediate-range ballistic missile that didn't actually uh, perform as the North Koreans would have liked. Uh, they had um, seven test failures out of eight flight tests uh, for the Musudan in, in 2016. And so now they've gone all in on the Hwasong-12, which is a much better missile system. Uh, but, you know, on the tell, there's a couple interesting observations, I suppose. Uh, with the earlier testing, so the Hwasong-12 was a failure at the start. They had three flight tests of the Hwasong-12 in April 2017 that failed. Um, and it's it's possible that some of these failures caused some damage to these very valuable launch vehicles, because if the missile explodes right as it ignites, that's going to be a very large explosion that the vehicle probably wouldn't be able to withstand. Uh, and it's possible that a total loss of the vehicle might be likely or it would require significant repairs. And so for a while, what the North Koreans were doing with their large missiles, including the Hwasong-12, when they first tested it in May 2017, was they would use a firing table where the missile would be erected and the tail would actually drive away and then the missile would launch. Because if something did go wrong, all you would lose is the missile. You wouldn't actually damage the tail. And so what we've seen with the August 2017 test of the Hwasong-12 and the September 2017 test, both of which when the Hwasong-12 overflew Japan uh, and this latest test, is that the launch is being carried out off the tail itself. Uh, the tail is not pulling away. It is erecting the missile and it is launching it. 
And what does that tell us? I think that tells us that the North Koreans are quite confident at this point in the reliability uh, of this of this missile and and the engine. Uh, and you know that's sort of the policy implication of why we shouldn't want them to test these kinds of missiles, even if the North Koreans want us to believe that these are now a fact of life and very mundane activities for them. Uh, it's because uh, each and every test of of a given missile and a given engine, for instance, will allow them to improve the reliability, gather more data. Uh, you know, overall, I think this is actually the thirteenth test, thirteenth uh, flight test of the RD two hundred and fifty variant engine, which is what they use in not only the Hwasong twelve, but they also use just like the Hwasong eight hypersonic glider, the MARV, the Hwasong fourteen ICBM, uh, and in a two chamber configuration with the Hwasong fifteen. So, I want to, uh, I want to jump in for a moment there and just ask uh, Chad that uh, Chad, we've talked before, I think, when we had um, uh, when they had in, in Pyongyang one of those military parades about just the importance of uh, of transport or erector launches and and how uh, North Korea went from having very few of them and they were very uh, a very scarce resource uh, to suddenly having quite a lot more of them. And we talked about how it, it seems possible that North Korea is now producing its own tells, right? So the the, the fact that they're now uh, feeling confident enough to launch missiles directly off the tails without driving them away shows that, uh, A, they're confident that it'll work out without blowing up the tail, and B, they also have enough tails that if it does blow up, they can supply another one. Uh, yeah, um, I, 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 like Ankit said, though, I still think they, would, they wouldn't want to waste these just on, um, you know, a, a mere test event. Uh, I think they'll, um, they're still going to want to be testing these with, fairly uh reliable missile design so for example if there's a new you know there's this new Hwasong 17 ultra large ICBM which we saw rolled out in the uh, uh October 2020 military parade um and that was on this new I think it was 11 axle TEL um I I'd be interested to see how that one will be tested will it be off the the TEL or if one of these launch tables, like uh, Ankit said, because while they do have a, a capability to develop these, I think it's still relatively nascent and it will take time for them to be able to really roll out dozens and dozens of these things at future military parades. The, the Olympics, uh, of course, are starting in just four days' time on Friday, the Beijing Winter Olympics. I want to talk about the, the concept of an Olympic truce. Is that a thing? And, and how long has that been a thing? And how long does that usually last? Who wants to fill us in on that? Um, I, I, I can share a, a few bits on that. Yeah, there is a such thing as a, a, an Olympic truce. Uh, it was, you know, when there should be no conflict in order for sports partic uh, uh, participants in the Olympics to get there safely, come back. And it should wrap, I believe, like a week uh, before the Olympics starts and also uh, a week or so after it ends. So uh, that presumably is active right now and would be active until mid-March when the Paralympics end, because of course, it's not just the, the, the Olympics itself, there'll be a pause and then the Paralympics. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, you know, we're, I'm operating on the, on the assumption that Kim Jong-un suspends missile testing as of today. If he continues, and we see, um, you know, an increasing tempo or like larger missiles tested, then I, I think that's an indicator that there is something maybe up with the China-North Korea relationship that we're not aware of. I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does happen, it's a, it's a sign of disrespect. You know, we saw this in 2017. North Korea would sometimes launch missiles on the opening ceremonies of major political events in China. It wasn't well appreciated by China at the time. And we saw as a result of that, this acrimony emerging between Chinese and North Korean state media. 
Um, so I'm very interested to see if they do this. Um, I don't think if, if they continue testing um, through the Olympics and this supposed era of peace, it's not going to put them in a good position come March when they start traditionally warning of USFK drills and wanting restraint from South Korea on that. You'll have a new president in South Korea. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see how this goes. Does anybody want to comment on Chad's thoughts there? Well, I guess I, I don't actually have the the uh, statistics, but I would wonder if does uh, has the U.S. ever tested uh, any of their systems during the Olympics? Because uh, all, it all comes down to perception. So Chad's right that China would, based on how they've reacted in the past in terms of North Korea testing around events, then they would probably China would probably perceive that as uh, disrespectful. Um, but North Korea is frequently talks about uh, the double standards. And if it's just for internal testing purposes, then how can that be a provocation? But the neighbors will see it as a provocation. So it's uh, it just depend if they're willing to test that. Yeah, I, th I think that the key thing is, is if, uh, if North Korea does a large test uh, and it corresponds with an opening ceremony or a major part of the Olympics, of course, it just diverts attention away from the Olympics which is meant to be symbolic of peace and, and all of that. And so it's just um, undermining Xi Jinping's big show, I, I guess. That's that's how I see it. Yeah, the, also, other thing, think... the other thing to watch for in, I think, February is, you know, Kim's talked about this idea of, uh, uh, so Kim Jong-il's birthday on February 16th at the Politburo meeting uh, earlier this month, uh, Kim said that he wanted to see that celebrated with splendor. And so does that mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll carry out a missile test, could be a military parade or some kind of other demonstration um, but, you know, the North Koreans have their own impetus. And I think this idea that, you know, there's always been tension in the North Korea-China relationship that's, frankly speaking, I don't think it's ever been fully perceptible uh, to uh, those of us on the outside, uh, especially as it happens. In hindsight, uh, you know, we can perhaps um, appreciate some things a little bit more clearly. Uh, but I think China will grit its teeth and probably tolerate some more activity if the North Koreans do decide to go forward with it. I think there's a difference between, obviously, launching during an opening ceremony or something like that, which, you know, they did that with the Belt and Road Forum in 2017 and even the opening of the Hangzhou G20, if I recall correctly, in, in 2016. And so they've done that in the past. Uh, but right now, obviously, the relationship has, has improved quite a bit. So uh, I agree with Chad that I think, you know, we're going to be looking for some indicators uh, over the Olympics about how the North Koreans behave here. Also, I think we have to consider the dynamic between China and the U.S. when it comes to UNSC resolutions and also sanctions. Uh, recently, it seemed that China is still backing up North Korea for um, avoiding additional sanctions. But um, it, it seems to me that North Korea intentionally um, toned down the publicization of I, uh, um, intermediate range ballistic missile um, to irritate the United States a little bit, but not so much with China. Um, they will probably keep a close eye on whether what kind of actual action um, will come out of Washington after this IRBM, whether or not they will consider this as reaching um, near rescinding moratorium. Um, and then uh, if China joins in on sanctions, additional sanctions, which I think is unlikely, that may change North Korea's mind about testing further missiles, I think. But for now, it seems that because China is backing up North Korea with um, avoiding additional sanctions while the U.S. is still pursuing it, um, it seems it, it, it's in the it's we're in this little window where we see um, how North Korea will react to further actions from the United States.
yeah, and I, I just want to add to that. I mean, we've talked, there's been a lot of talk in recent months on this podcast, in our articles within the North Korea watching community that North Korea, especially last year, has attempted to routinize its missile testing, make it less about Kim Jong-un himself or uh, petulant reactions to foreign relations and more about um, the sort of mature uh, approach of a military interested in self-defense, uh, not focusing on any particular externality is the, the cause for all of this. And if you look at what we've just had in January, seven types of missile tests, no UN sanctions, uh, an IRBM test, a hypersonic test. Basically, North Korea is pushing the Rubicon of what is acceptable. It's creating new benchmarks about what it can do in future without risking uh, sanctions or maybe even limited military action or movement of military assets into the region. So um, I think it's important to, to keep that in mind. If you rewind to 2019, uh, we've seen a solid fuel uh, submarine launched ballistic missile, intermediate range. We've seen a hypersonic missile, and now we've seen an intermediate range missile. All of this, I think, taken together as a North Korean effort to basically compel the international community to accept, whether it likes it or not, that North Korea is a nuclear weapon state. But there's a paradox in all of this, as far as I'm concerned, because while it, it's edged towards these benchmarks relatively successfully, how can its, we assume, still important goal of gaining international sanctions relief be one if and when we move into the realm of nuclear testing again or ICBM testing? In, in the Congress of January 2021, 20, uh, Kim Jong-un revealed an intent to have a solid fuel ICBM to launch spy satellites to um, uh, refine the precision targeting of, of missiles up to 15,000 kilometers away. Um, we've also seen in military parades, multiple missiles that have not yet been tested that would probably change this, the sort of balance or tilt it away from this kind of turning a blind eye phenomena that we're seeing at the, the, the moment. So I, I wonder if the North Koreans really think if they, if they keep this up, they can compel Washington to, to just succumb and suddenly say, Hey, look, we give up. You guys win. There's nothing more we can do because that's very unlikely to happen. And I think we're seeing that right now in Ukraine where President Putin is really trying to coerce uh, Washington to uh, Russian objectives with NATO and so on. And it looks like Washington is not really willing to budge so much. So I'm just, I just see this paradox in the long term and I don't know what others on the call think, but um, I, I just fundamentally don't see this as being something that is coherent in the long term and will ultimately still leave Pyongyang isolated. I would, I would like to, to sort of hear some clearer arguments about how this latest launch is or isn't a breach of um, North Korea's agreements with the US or uh, United Nations um, resolution, Security Council resolutions. Sure, I can, I can, I can jump in on that, Jacko. Um, so it is, it's pretty unambiguously a violation of uh, their obligations going back to Resolution seventeen eighteen, not to test ballistic missiles uh, and and weapons of mass destruction. This is a very large ballistic missile designed to deliver nuclear warheads. Um, so it's it's a violation in that regard. Um, even even you know Blue House has already said this. Um, I think what's going to be interesting is that, you know, China and Russia's position at the UNSC has changed quite a bit since 2017, right? Even after the MARV test earlier this month, uh, China refused the idea of 
of revisiting uh, the issue of sanctions. And I think part of the explanation for that is shifting geopolitics. Uh, but also one of the takeaways that China and Russia have had since uh, the collapse of the Hanoi summit is that if and when North Korea returns to these, this kind of testing, you know, the onus is really on the United States for not having taken that deal in Hanoi um, uh, in, in many other ways. So um, that's the first thing. Uh, the second is on the issue of this moratorium, uh, which, uh, you know, I did I did a pretty long uh, thread about this on Twitter because I think the moratorium is is. I think people have different understandings of the moratorium, but going back to the third plenary of um, the Seventh Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea in April 2018, which was when Kim announced the moratorium, there's sort of two things that Kim says in that in that plenary uh, report. Uh, the first is when he's sort of observing the accomplishments of the Pyongyang missile testing campaign between 2013 and 2017, and he says, you know, things went great. We don't have to carry out additional IRBM or ICBM tests to improve our missile capabilities. But then there's a second section in that report where he uh, he talks about the resolutions, i.e. the decisions that he has taken. And when he outlines the decision on missile testing moratorium, he omits IRBMs. He only says intercontinental range ballistic missiles. He says, after April 21st, 2018, uh, Juche 107, we will no longer test any more ICBMs. But it's, it's more complicated than that because it always is with North Korea. And so um, at some point in 2019, and I'm not sure exactly when this happened, either at the Hanoi summit or maybe the June 30th meeting uh, at Panmunjom between Trump and Kim, there may have been an assurance given to the United States that the long-range missile testing moratorium also includes IRBM. Uh, because not only did we hear that from former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo not long after the June 30th meeting, but the North Koreans themselves, uh, in a statement, uh, which uh, admittedly wasn't as authoritative as Kim Jong-un speaking at a plenary, uh, this was, I believe, the inter-Korean office that came out with this statement, pointed out that the moratorium covered intermediate range ballistic. So there's a lot of ambiguity around if IRBMs are covered. I don't think the North Koreans are interpreting this latest test to violate the moratorium, because I think if that were so, uh, alongside this statement about um, from the Academy of National Defense Science on the test, we might have seen an MFA statement or something else in state media about why they are ending the moratorium. And also the Blue House seems to have that same interpretation because as Chung-min said, they, they are indicating that this is coming close to violating the moratorium. So those are my uh, thoughts. So what that. we can say for sure is that if and when North Korea does test an ICBM, uh, then that will be a clear breach of, of all of its agreements and moratorium. Correct. Uh, yeah, but they never agreed it... to the sanctions. So no, when you say they violated I mean... sanctions, it's... Right. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I was. What I meant to say was, is it a, a violation of uh, United Nations Security Council resolutions or of its uh, its agreements? Of course, uh, no country ever accepts sanctions that are uh, placed on itself. Uh, that's, I think, uh, a, a historical given uh, for every situation. Uh, is there a chance that a missile test like this, particularly as Ankit mentions, uh, uh, was not, or I think Colin mentioned, was not announced ahead of time? Is there a chance that a missile test could accidentally hit something sensitive like a commercial airplane or a ship or an inhabited island or a neighboring country? I mean, the risk is there. Um, so with aviation, uh, most countries that carry out missile tests will notify uh, airmen. It's called a notice to airmen saying avoid this airspace because we will be carrying out military activities. Um, now, obviously, the risk of two relatively small objects on a global scale colliding in three dimensions is pretty low. The risk is always if there's a huge breakup of the missile airframe and a ton of debris fragments uh, sort of scattered throughout the air, that's considerably more risky. Um, so as far as I know, that's never happened, certainly never happened with North Korea. Um, but the North Koreans don't provide advance warning. 
uh, right? They they said they would actually in 2018 when Kim Jong Un was in his charm offensive and they were trying to you know be responsible players. They said that they would provide notices to the International Civil Aviation Organization. They haven't done that. Uh, the only time the North Koreans do pre-notify uh, is with regard to their uh, space launches because they insist, of course, that their space launches are peaceful, legitimate civilian activities. Now, uh, Jong-Win, a lot of people, uh, civilians uh, in South Korea who don't focus on North Korea on a day-to-day basis, as we do, seem to be able to collectively shrug their shoulders uh, and carry on. Will this have, do you imagine this would have any effect at all on the elections that are just four weeks away? I would say some, but I will have to uh, break this down to two different sets of what's happening. One is North Korean perception on the South Korean um, election as a potential factor. And the second part is how the the candidates or presidential candidates are seeing North Korean framing it for their own utility. For South Korean citizens, though, North Korea has not been um, one of the main issues that they are regarding when they are um, planning to cast their votes on which candidate. But it has been increasingly in the news and also in some of the polls as um, something to talk about. Um, it, but it, not, it did not came from how, how North Korea missiles are back-to-back. Um, they are not as laser-focused as North Korea watchers when North Korea is firing missile. They have some sort of fatigue on um, these North Korean missiles. They, they don't take count. But uh, because a person like conservative presidential candidate Yoon Seok-yeol has been using North Korea quite a lot to um, to brand himself as a strongman leader um, who will bring redeploy more that uh, deploy more that um, in South Korea and other strategic assets as well. And Lee, uh, Lee Jae Myung Kim, the progressive, they have been uh, criticizing Yoon Seok Yeol for war quote unquote warmongering behavior. The other part of this is whether or not North Korea is trying to influence South Korean election. Right, uh, the progressive candidate Lee Jae Myung has been. Um, going with this point, saying that North Korea should stop missile testing, um, partly because it is driving a wedge between public opinion in South Korea, talking about past um, allegations of North Korean um, election um, intervention. But uh, it seems that from North Korea's point of view, South Korea is not the top factor when they are considering whether or not to launch a missile or what kind of t- uh, what type of missile they are launching. Like we discussed so far, U.S. and China is one of the is their core um, state actor factors that they are considering, not South Korea, because from North Korean point of view, um, regardless of which um, candidates win in South Korea in March, they have a way to uh, pursue their goals, um, even if it's just a conservative candidate winning. Now, uh, last night, late last night, I had trouble sleeping, in fact, and I was up at 2 a.m. Uh, watching the uh, the BBC News, and they had somebody on uh, to comment about this story who I would not consider to be uh, a North Korea expert or a missile expert, and uh, in the first sentence out of his mouth was the word provocation, and that's something that the, the mainstream media is always quick to, to say, uh, that this is a provocation, and that, uh, or also that North Korea is simply trying to, uh, to get the attention uh, of America. Now, a regular listener and good friend of this podcast uh, broke down the the bigger pic- picture situation, I guess, into three very clear and sensible questions. And the first one is utility. Uh, why does North Korea test missiles at all? And I think we've talked a little bit about that, about sort of perfecting systems. The second one, timing. Why do they test them now? 
Uh, and the third one being frequency. Why did I test or conduct so many tests in a short period of time? And I want to go back to the second question there, timing. Um, does North Korea normally test missiles in January or is that uh, an unusual thing, Chad? Yeah, uh, no, it doesn't usually conduct this uh, frequency or of missile testing in January. In fact, uh, it's very rare for there to be this many missiles tested in January. But um, yeah, fundamentally, I just think it goes back to this uh, window of opportunity issue uh, I mentioned at the top where uh, the US is uh, concentrated elsewhere, it's focused elsewhere. Um, I mean, Josh Rogan of the Washington Post, uh, he actually wrote in a column just a few days ago um, that basically this is, ever, you know, the US has has trouble concentrating on more than one national security crisis at a time. Um, uh, so I think it, you know, North Korea is seeing that the, the Olympics, the window that's open before it starts, the South Korean election um, that's coming up. I think all of this combined is just giving North Korea uh, a pretty safe month to, to do high frequency of missile tests. To, uh, to misquote Sigmund Freud, uh, sometimes a missile is just a missile uh, without any, any hidden meaning. Uh, is that more than likely the case here, that it's not intentionally uh, a provocation or a, 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 a tr an attempt to uh, reach out to America, but simply just a missile for, for the sake of testing weapons? No, I, I don't think it's just a, just a technical thing. I think it's partly also political signaling uh, regarding your second question that you received, the timing. Um, although it is also true that this is a window of time where they have a very good uh, condition to test all the missiles without, with a minimum political risk uh, up until today, uh, but also it came after a United States uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said North Korea is trying to gain attention and so on and so forth, and North Korea has been arguing that uh, the exact thing that they are doing this for the uh, for improving uh, self-defense technicalities and if we see the timing um, we can see that they are in, in some sort of fashion they are trying to politically signal signal to Washington Colin domestically uh, the focus hasn't been so much on this right I mean in in recent I think it was I heard that it in a recent Rodong Shinmun uh, the previous launch, not the one held yesterday, but the one before that, wasn't on page one. It was something about agriculture. So, what what's the uh, what are the North Korean people being told? The the one you're referring to is uh, last Friday, on January 28th. There was there were a lot of reports in state media, but by virtue of okay, well, the the front page was Kim Jong Un visiting uh, a, a military airfield where they're going to destroy it and turn it into a a vegetable greenhouse farm. Uh, they didn't mention the fact that it was a military airfield, but it was quite obvious that that's what it was. And uh, the second page was him visiting a munitions factory where they're producing an, an important uh, weapon system, as state media put it. And then uh, just by virtue of, of him being at those events, they're going to be in, in, the, in the, the top. And then the missile tests that they were reporting on, which was uh, January 25th and January 27th missile test, from previous days, that was down on page three or page two, I can't remember, but not page one. And so uh, the curious thing about that is, though, that um, state media was very obviously telling us, uh, 
Well, the previous day, South Korea located, uh, told us uh, that South Korean military announced the location of the missile test on January 27th in the Ryeonpo area of near Hamhung on the East Coast. So uh, state media knows that we know that uh, from the South Korean military. They're uh, quite accurate with their uh, assessments, but not always perfectly accurate of the location of the launch. And then the next day, state media tells us that Kim Jong-un was in that exact same place um, on an unknown date. They didn't specify the date, um, but they said that he was in that place inspecting the the airfield that's going to be a vegetable greenhouse farm. So state media is winking at us that Kim Jong-un was in the same place as the missile test, likely on the same day. Um, but then they didn't mention Kim Jong-un in the report about the missile test. So um, I think that's just, it's part of this curiosity of uh, Kim Jong-un, ha- he didn't attend any missile tests uh, officially. He didn't publicly attend any between March 2020 and then one earlier this month, um, uh, hypersonic missile test. So, um, but we would, we've also caught state media attempting to Photoshop evidence of him being at a missile test out before. So we've caught them uh basically lying about his presence at a test so there's definitely some signaling going on there like um they are sensitive to the to the the to kim jong-un being at a missile test publicly now whether that's um to uh diminish the importance of it because they're uh, worried about the domestic audience you know needing to feel like their uh, civilian concerns are more important or whether it's a mess uh you know trying to uh, diminish the 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 impact of it of Kim Jong Un being there uh, for the benefit of foreign actors like the United States. Uh, it's really unclear, and there's it's really up in the air on that. And then there was something in the uh, the news, uh, North Korean state media, quite recently about haircuts that I'm sure I feel certain will become uh, a clickbait or uh, or Daily Mail kind of article. Uh, what was the haircut story, and ha- how does this fit into the uh, <laughs> the recent picture? Uh, well, that's that's a purely non-missile concern. But uh, over the last year, they've had these congresses of of big uh, political unions uh, that cover various aspects of adult society or also the youth. Uh, so it's like the youth, the women's, the trade union workers, and the agriculture union. And they each had a congress in the last year. And so Kim Jong-un would send a letter to each of these, uh, laying out all these kind of vague instructions and that are mostly ideological. So the big picture is they're very. The party is very worried about uh, the ideological purity of the population. They need people to, you know, Kim Jong Un talks in such a like. Oh, just please sincerely believe in the the cause of the socialist system and the party, and everything will be a utopia. Um, and so he mentioned in a few of these, including one uh, that came out in state media yesterday about the agricultural union uh, congress about you know. You need to have a certain haircut and you need to wear your clothes a certain way in order to be a model socialist citizen. So he said this a few times. It's just about um, we have to remember North Koreans have to abide by this social uh, system. They have to be a socialist um, citizen, perfectly uh, considerate of all their peers and uh, having no individualism and no desire to do something uh, that would not benefit the state. So um, it's just all part of that. 
Well, as we uh, approach the uh, the end of this podcast, uh, let's sort of bring it back a little bit to, to where we are now. We've got the Olympics starting in less than a week. We've got South Korea's presidential election in just over four weeks, uh, and or just over a month, I should say, and a congressional midterm election in the United States later on this year on the 8th of November. Um, what can we expect from North Korea in terms of uh, weapons testing uh, and activities uh, in that time frame? Uh, who wants to kick that off first? Could I, I'll, I'll say not testing because I don't want to predict if there's going to be an ICBM test or not. And we've all just been talking about it uh, and I have no idea. But in terms of military parades, uh, as Ankit mentioned earlier, and as we can see in satellite imagery, they're preparing for a military parade. now. Uh, this is the the 80th anniversary of the birth of Kim Jong-il and the 110th uh, anniversary of the birth of Kim Il-sung, the two former leaders. And that's going to be uh, Kim Jong-il's is February 16th. And uh, Kim Il-sung's birthday is Mar is April 15th. So uh, what happened the last time that these were round numbers, uh, five years ago and then 10 years ago, uh, on the, the yeah, there were military parades on all four of these round numbers during Kim Jong-un's rule. So for Kim Jong-il's birthday, February 16th, it's probably going to be some kind of small-scale military parade, maybe just troops marching, like an oath-taking ceremony sort of thing. But I would say let's expect a big military parade on April 15th in the center of Pyongyang, and they could potentially show off existing missiles or new missiles. And back to what Chad said earlier, you know, does it, do they consider an, an accomplishment of one of their uh, five-year uh, military development plans to show off, merely show off a new system like they did with the Hwasong 17 ICBM? Or, uh, you know, would, would we expect them to test it sometime in the next five years? But, you know, they could show off something big uh, on April 15th. And I, I wouldn't expect something big on Feb February 16th, but you never know. Let me cut back to Ankit for a moment. Ankit, didn't you say something about uh, there being a, a, an order to celebrate Kim Jong-il's coming birthday on February 16th with Splendor? Right. So they talked about that at the Politburo meeting. But again, I mean, the indicator of what is considered to be sufficiently full of Splendor is, is up to interpretation. A military parade would meet that. Uh, I don't think they were talking about an American sugar substitute. So I'm, 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 I'm expecting something a little big uh, to equal Splendor. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the other the other options are, I think, um, you know, we're very overdue for a satellite launch, and that is one of the things that Kim Jong Un put on his eighth. When was the last one? Uh, last one was in February 2016, uh, so it was quite a while ago. And uh, there have been some indicators at state media last fall, uh, you know, articles here and there talking about space and and, and related activities. Uh, also, in the inter-Korean context, South Korea is moving towards launching its own military reconnaissance satellites. So in terms of the tit-to-tat inter-Korean arms race aspect, there could be an impetus there. Uh, the so when you say at launch, then we would be expecting uh, some kind of satellite that would be able to spy on South Korea and other territory. Is that the sort of satellite we mean? It depends. I mean, the North Koreans have never launched a satellite payload that's done anything useful. Uh, they they have indicated aspirations to do that. Um, and NATO has been working on quite a few things. Their satellite control center in Pyongyang is being well maintained. Um, I was about to say that for uh, for Kim Il Sung's hundredth anniversary, uh, right after Kim Kim uh, Kim Jong Un inherited power, uh, they did carry out a satellite launch, which was the reason that the Leap Day deal with the Obama administration actually did fall apart that year. A satellite launch has a number of advantages for the North Koreans, right? Uh, they have they have new missile engines that they would like to test that they could use as part of a satellite launch vehicle. 
like I said earlier, they pre-notify of satellite launches, which is a very good way to build an art, you know, ge generate a crisis with the U.S. administration and uh, offer the Biden administration an opportunity to try to bargain its way out of a satellite launch if they were to choose to take that route. I, I, I doubt they actually would, but that might be one of the perceived advantages. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm going to follow Colin's lead and not try to predict too much about what the North Koreans will do. Uh, one thing I will point out that we haven't talked about too much uh, in terms of the broader context this year is, you know, we talk a lot about the Olympics and the sensitivity of that event for China. Uh, but I actually think in a way the bigger event this year might be the 20th Party Congress uh, in China, which is a, a big moment for Xi Jinping, particularly uh, as the demographic picture in China and the economy uh, aren't you know, necessarily where the CCP would like it to be. This is when Xi is supposed to either announce some kind of heir apparent or consolidate his leader for life position further. So it is possible that the North Koreans might be choosing the worse um, or at least the better of two options, which is to make the first half of 2022 a little bit more difficult for Xi, even if that means conducting a few tests during or right after the Olympics and and keeping uh, the the latter part of the year a little bit more quiet uh, as as uh, the 20th Party Congress uh, comes together in China. Just remind us of the timeline for that Congress, if you would. Uh, no date, but I believe it is either supposed to take place in late October or November. Got it. Okay. Uh, anybody else? What else do we expect for the rest of this year from North Korea? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, I, I, the big question is whether or not we're going to see any of these um, other missile-related programs push forward. Like I said earlier, there are two very large uh, SLBMs that have been trotted out at military parades in the last 18 months. Uh, one of them was described by North Korean state media as like the world's strongest weapon or world's greatest weapon. There's, like I said, the, the Hwasong 17 ICBM, um, which is still untested. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I just think if they do go ahead with any of these things, it, it, um, it could trigger a, a bunch of consequences. I would be interested to see uh, what kind of uh, pressure there would be on the UN sanctions front if uh, if the Chinese and Russians would be maybe a, a bit more willing to support sanctions. Maybe not, um, as Ankit suggested earlier. But um, yeah, it's it just seems like North Korea have uh, have very limited options to try and change the um, the economy and. This is just one area where Kim Jong-un can, can continue to show superficial progress. Chad, what about the submarine? What if they, what if they say they've deployed the, their new submarine with the yeah. nuclear Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, I forgot about that. So yeah, we remember in July 2019, Kim Jong-un toured this very large submarine that was under construction. It's never been formally launched. Um, that's something else we could see that I guess would fall within under a threshold of of acceptable military developments how close would a submarine be able to legally get into south korea's sort of uh, maritime territory before it's too close what's the uh, the range on that sort of thing uh, is it sort of 5 mile limit or something uh, i mean so i don't think the north so the north koreans have never actually uh, a large submarine like that the Romeo class, the operations that they have undertaken are usually into the East Sea, and they usually test comms. Um, it would be very risky to risk uh, a, a high-value asset like that by bringing it close to South Korean waters. Uh, the territorial water limit is 12, 12 um, nautical miles, 200 nautical, uh, 200 kilometers for the, uh, sorry, 200 nautical miles for the exclusive economic zone of South Korea, where military activity is permitted. 
But again, I, th I think the North Koreans would choose to use uh, smaller submarines uh, for those kinds of operations, uh, like they did, for instance, when they sunk the Chonan uh, in, in 2010. Okay, well, that, that's good. Thank you for clarifying that, uh, Ankit. Well, I think that's where we're going to, uh, to have to- Sorry, wrap Jack, oh, final I have one more. Uh, so when it comes to what to look out for this year uh, about inter-Korean arms race, actually, uh, we saw a lot of tit-for-tat going back and forth between South Korea and North Korea when it comes to military equipment testing, weapons testing. Um, and I think um, even, even if the progressives win, um, regardless of who wins in South Korea in March, the, the trend will likely continue. The progressive candidate, Lee Jae-myung, he has already pledged for a nuclear submarine and other deterrence capabilities, um, although it's uh, not as hawkish as Yoon Seok-yeol, the conservative candidate who has a, a lot of um, a, a lot of pledges when it comes to building up capabilities like the kill chain, preemptive strike, hypersonic missile, ultra precision uh, guided missiles, and so on and so forth. So for North Korea, even if that South Korea wouldn't be like a main factor when they are conducting military drills or exercises or weapon testing, um, it will still provide justification for them rhetorically to say that because South Korea is um, continuing to build up its armed forces, they will do that too. Just uh, just one final observation on the inter-Korean piece. Uh, you know, I, I find it, I guess, somewhat amusing that the strongest statement out of the Blue House uh, since 2019 with regard to any North Korean missile test has come after the test of a missile that the North Koreans would almost certainly never use to strike South Korea. When all of these other missiles that they've been testing the entire time, CAN-23s, 24s, all of which would be used very early in a conflict to strike South Korean territory, infrastructure, airfields, ports, and so forth, um, you know, the Blue House has had a very different reaction to. So that's just probably, you know, something to, something to mull over. Uh, I just find that a little uh, odd. That may be a reflection of a, a fundamental doubt uh, in South Korea that North Korea would use those weapons against South Korean territory. It could be. I, I, I think, unfortunately, that's a, uh, that's a dangerous bet to make because you might find yourself being wrong uh, halfway into a conflict when it's too late. Well, that's a, a, a grim note to end on, but end we must. So thank you once again, Colin, Ankit, Chad, and Jongmin for coming on our Missile Aeneas show. I do hope that name gets used in the title there somehow. Chad, talk to Aries about that. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula on a daily basis. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, you can tweet them at us or you can email us at podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. 